All right. Well, thank you guys for such a warm welcome. That was so sweet of you. I am so thankful that, hold on, I need my water. Um, we are outside for many reasons, but a big part of that is I have not taught very often here. And in my mind, I was trying to figure out how in the world to teach inside with that stage and having you like literally all right here, but back in the back. So I'm so thankful that we can, we can do it out here and I can see all of your faces a little bit more easily than inside. That was really, in my mind, I was having a hard time going there. Um, all right, so if you were in table group this week, one of our questions for you was what do you think about when you think about a pastor? How do you describe what they do? What do they do? And I thought it would be fun to talk to some little people about this. So I went and I asked some pastor's kids what it is that they thought their parents did all day long. And I thought I would share a few with you. All right, from the Moss household. Ella. Um, I really have no idea. I think he spends a lot of time in his chair typing on his computer. All right. Hudson Moss. Ooh, I really don't know, but he does work with college students, so he was very confident in that. College <laughs> students was part of it. But Hadley Moss may be my favorite of the three of them. Um, he preaches? That's it. It's a question. He preaches, maybe. From my household, David, who is nervously laughing as if he should know the answer to this, but clearly does not. <laughs> says, uh, I think you meet with a lot of students, <laughs> which is true. Bentley, you either have a lot of meetings or you make up that you have a lot of meetings. <laughs> Landon, you just talk a lot. <laughs> Landon is a man of few words, so he does not grasp my need to talk to people. <laughs> but I also wanted to expand to some of our Sunnybrook staff. So I went to the Vincent household just to, to get another picture of this. Audrey Vincent, he uses a lot of verses. No context, just he uses a lot of verses. Matthew, he drives around a lot. And then I'm finding, thank goodness for the Ebert family, because they actually knew what was happening. Um, and actually gave me many options as fitting for an Ebert. They had lots of words for me. Canyon Ebert's... This is my, my top for him. It says, they study God's word so they can understand more about him, so they can tell other people at the church. I thought that was a great little answer. And then Sophie reminded me a little bit of her mom. Well, they help the church learn about Jesus so that they can tell their friends, who are then going to tell their friends, who are then going to tell their friends, and then their friends, so that eventually the whole world knows. Like that, it sounds a lot like scripture. They're going to go to the ends of the world, but she had lots of ways she was going to describe this to me. Um, but I thought those were great. I thought our children did such a great job. They got pieces of it, right? But not quite the full picture. So the question for you is how do you answer this question? What do ministers do? What do pastors do? What are we supposed to do? How are you supposed to think of them? See, Paul begins this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And he's trying to explain to the Corinthians how, how it is that they are supposed to think about these apostles that the Lord has gifted them with, what their role is in the life of the church. And Paul has been working for three chapters now, and will continue through this letter, 
to kind of expose the Corinthians' worldly thoughts, the worldly practices and ideas that they've let sneak into the church that actually don't fit there. They don't fit with the life of the saints. And tonight, Paul is going to draw us back to focus on our view of how we treat the apostles and those God sent to minister. So if you remember in chapter 1, the Corinthians are having this argument on who's the best, right? Oh, I follow Apollos. No, no, I follow Paul. No, Peter. And they're going back and forth and trying, trying to pit these apostles against each other somehow. Like trying to tie themselves to the best and the most well-spoken, the most influenced. Like which one do they consider to be at the very top? That's who they want to be after because in reality it has nothing to do with the apostles. It's them. Because if they tie themselves to the, the best, that means they're the best. They're the most impressive. They're the greatest. And Paul wants to draw them a very different image of the, who the apostles are. Because that image of the apostles actually is, should turn the Corinthians to what they should be looking like themselves. All right, so if you want to turn with me, we're going to start. Verse 1, chapter 4, reads like this. A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. So did you catch that? How does, how does Paul think of himself and the other apostles? They are servants they are managers of the mysteries of God. And if you remember, I don't want to go past this, the mysteries of God was described in chapter 2. It has been revealed that Jesus Christ was that mystery coming in the flesh to take on sin and death. So it's been revealed at this point. Another way to say this is that Paul and the apostles are trustees of the gospel of Christ. See, a trustee is someone who looks after or takes care of something on behalf of something, someone else. It's not actually theirs. They don't own it. It doesn't belong to them. They just take care of it. So Paul has been called, and the other apostles have been called, to take care of the church, to guard what it believes and to teach it. But it doesn't actually belong to Paul. See, and it's very important we, we grasp that, that the church, that the gospel, it, it's not Paul's. And it's not Apollos, and it's not Peter's, and it's not Scott's, and it's not mine, and it's not Drew, and it's not Alex. It's God's. And it's always been God's, and it will always be God's. And it's God who is the one who is entrusted, who has given Paul and the others to steward the gift of grace given to them. And they are going to steward it on God's behalf and with God's interests in mind. So they are going to be accountable to God in the end, for it's God's. So they aren't free to work however they would like to. Like, they have to have guardrails. And the Lord has given those. Did you catch the Lord's requirement for them? Do you catch the criteria? Because here's the thing. It's not the criteria that the Corinthians would like to be using. And if we're really honest, it's not the criteria that we like to use when we think about how we want to choose our ministers that we want to follow. See, it's not their eloquence of teaching. 
And it's not their firm leadership. It's not looking the part and sounding the part or their ability to draw a giant crowd. No, it has nothing to do with their influence. Rather, it has everything to do with their faithfulness. Faithfulness to God in proclaiming the foolishness of the cross to a world that desperately needs to hear its power and its truth. Which is why Paul can confidently stand on his next statements. Let's continue in verse 3. And it reads, It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. See, Paul isn't saying that ministers should never be evaluated and never questioned, that they're above all of those things. He's actually going to strongly warn later in another letter to the Corinthians that false teachers are coming in and they're going to need to be questioned. And their answers will dictate what comes after that. Rather, he is trying to plead with them that this fickleness of public approval has no place here. It stands in contrast to what God is actually calling them to because God again, is the one that has gifted it, and God will be the one that judges it. See, external things are pretty easy to measure, and we like to be the ones that measure it. Large crowds, check. Large words spoken, check, check. Looks the part, check. And we go on, measuring, measuring, shifting, what we want our leaders to be. But it's never the same. Depends on the group you're with. Who knows? But as finite humans, we have no ability to determine the internal workings of our own hearts, let alone the workings of someone else's hearts. And we see in verse 4, Paul is, is not aware of any unfaithfulness in his ministry, but he trusts that his measurement of himself does not compare to the one who can actually assess him. Paul will be judged. The apostles, the ministers, those preparing to teach will be judged for how we steward the gift of grace that has been given. When the Lord comes, because the Lord is going to come and he's going to bring to light all things that are hidden in darkness. But the Corinthians attempt to be the measurers, to be the ones that assessed whether you are good enough or not, only exposes that they are, again, immature and lack all wisdom. So in light of that, Paul is going to move a little stronger in his talk with them. And not just now how he, they should view them as the apostles, but how it is that they are currently viewing themselves and how that is an inaccurate view of it. Verse 6 reads like this. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of saying, nothing beyond what is written, 
The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For you make us, and for who makes you superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us, and I wish you did reign, so that we, would, we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in the last place. Like men condemned to, die, condemned to die, we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. So sarcasm is not my strength. I'm going to be honest with you. That's not, I'm not witty enough for that, and that's okay. Um, but I do think it has a place there can be a moment because it kind of jars you just a little bit. And the Corinthians need to be jarred. And Paul's words are dripping with this sarcasm. Because he has no intention of sugarcoating what he is trying to say to them. You Corinthians have let worldliness consume your thinking and your actions. Their need for self-importance has led them away from where the gospel is actually pointing us. And we're going to spend more time there in the second half. But Paul is trying to drive home that the gospel is always pointing us to the cross, which only knows weakness and shame and humiliation. And the Corinthians are trying all that they can to go the other way. And he's given himself and Apollo says the examples of how it is that you live in light of the gift that has been given. And Paul gives them a picture, a picture of a procession, if you call it. So in that time, if you had went to battle with your city, with your nation, there would be a big parade at the end of it. And at the front are your victors coming back into the city. And the Corinthians, they have placed themselves there at the very front, waving at the crowds, looking the parts, right? They are reigning like they're kings. They are lacking nothing. Seem pretty proud of themselves and the victory that has been theirs. But the apostles, the apostles aren't up at the front. That's not where they stand. They're displayed in the very last place, headed, marching to their deaths, laughed at as they come in, looking like fools, weak, dishonored, persecuted, slandered, like the scum of the earth, which people were just going to toss out of the city and forget. But those apostles looked a lot like Jesus, marching to Calvary, looking the fool, 
looking a mess, marching to the cross. See, Paul isn't grasping for our pity here. He's not trying to play the victim card. He's not even trying to earn that gold star of apostleship, right, to make himself look good. No, he's giving this list, this visual of what is happening to he and Apollos. And he wants to show them the very different picture between what a life submitted to faithfully sharing the gospel really is going to look like, what's really going to cost you, and what a life like just talking about Jesus but kind of clinging to the world does instead. One marches at the back, headed towards the cross. One waves as if they've won, but they've won nothing. And Paul loves them enough to call them out. He's concerned for them. And you can hear it as he shifts in his letter here. We're going to start up again in verse 14. It says, I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I have become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills it. And I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod, or in love, and a spirit of gentleness? See, Paul has a very intimate connection with this church. He's the one that planted it. He's the one that laid that foundation of Christ being crucified in their place. So he views them as his, his very children and treats them as his very children, which is different, right? He gives a, another group that they have, these instructors. See, these instructors were pretty common among the Greeks and the Romans. They were like guides for immature young boys. They would help them make sure they get to school, make sure they got back, make sure they did the chores. And so they're kind of like babysitters. So not a ton of authority, not great long-term vision for them. Not to downcast any of you that babysit, so grateful for all of you that help watch our children, but it's very different than the parents' role, right? Um, so Paul, as this, a father to them, he has a different role. See, he has authority over this church. And because he loves them like a father, he wants to oversee their spiritual growth. See, Paul knows that you don't stumble in to spiritual maturity. You don't just fumble your way to it. That's not how it works. It takes work. And you need someone to imitate. How do we learn to pray if we're not listening in to someone else praying? How do we open God's word and study it together if no one's going to open it and study with me and teach me? But the problem here is Paul's not there. Paul's actually still in Ephesus. Paul has no idea when he's coming back. He hopes to. has no idea when that's going to be. But Paul knows that discipleship is really hard at his distance, and so he's made a different plan. He's going to send them Timothy. 
And he knows because Timothy has traveled with him, because Timothy has been at all the, a lot of these missionary journeys with him. Timothy has watched Paul, and he's grown with Paul. And he's learned to imitate Paul. So when they are imitating Timothy, they're going to be imitating Paul. Because that's what Paul did at every church he went to. It was the same. It wasn't different in Ephesus as it was in Corinthian. He did the same thing everywhere he went. And he's calling them to follow me. Do what I have done. Later in in 1 Corinthians, he's going to say this again, and he's going to add, as I follow Christ. So Paul's going to follow Christ, and they're going to follow Paul, except for Paul's not there, so they're going to follow Timothy. But like young children who get really bold at their parents' absence, some of their group has begun to puff up their chests and double down on the little bit of smack talk. I mean, what's Paul really going to do? I don't know. Do you guys remember those kids on the playground that talked the big talk? Like they were going to really tell their parents what's up, and then they got with their parents and said nothing? Yep. But Paul so desperately wants them to repent, to repent of this disunity, this division that they're creating, this pride that has come in. But because he is like a father to them, if no repentance comes, and the Lord wills it, and he gets to come back, discipline comes with him. He has no desire to fight with them over words. His plan is just to keep reminding them of the kingdom of God and the cross that looks foolish and weak in the eyes of the world, but in reality, they display God's power to deal with all sin and all death, and he's going to bring that back. See, what Paul is teaching them in his words is that your words must be followed in your actions. That's where the transformation takes place. That's where it gets rooted And he leaves it up to them. You choose. You choose, guys. All right, we're going to take just a little break. Sorry, I hit my button still. So if you need to use the restroom, right through that door, and we'll see you shortly. You got it back on? Here we go. Guys, that was great. That was... was (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to confess, when my husband drives, so we have been married 18 years, I still gasp, and I've ridden with him a bunch of times. I can't, we can't control it, guys, I'm sorry. It just comes out. It has to happen. All right, here we go. Second half. So we could probably say this every week of this study. The Corinthian church is a mess. They got a lot of issues. And Paul is working really, really hard to help them overcome them. But in reality, this one letter that he's writing to the Corinthians, even the next letter he's going to write to them, is not going to resolve all those issues. In the same way, me standing up here and talking with you, this one conversation here tonight, it's not going to be enough. It's not going to be what just turns on and we we get it now. Here we go. We're going to live different. It's not what does it. There's this fight that we're in that the culture is pulling us into. The world is saying, you either 
need to be really, really important. All right? The self-importance. Make myself great. This pride that the Corinthians are wrestling with. Or the other side, kind of the self-loathing. This damnation of ourself. And the culture's pulling both ways. And I think in this room, we have a mix. We have a mix. There are some who, although they would not say this, kind of mentally carry around a list in their heads of all their achievements, all the things they're really, really good at, all the Christian things that they can do. Make it to church every Sunday, serve, read my Bible, pray, and the list keeps going. But it's I. I serve. I go. I do. But on the other side, we have another group here. And you have no idea why you're here. You have no idea how God could ever love you. And you carry around with you this list of all the reasons he shouldn't. I'm a mess. I'm too far gone. I've sinned too greatly. Here's all the things. And again, it's I, I, I. And we're being pulled. Pulled to pick a side. The thing is, both are a lie. Both don't get you anywhere. Both go against the gospel. See, neither one of them line up with that. And we're in a fight for it. And it's going to be day after day fighting for it. Living in light of what you know to be true. So this one conversation is not going to be enough. But it's our starting point. See, again and again, we're going to need to come back and ask ourselves the same question the rhetorical question that Paul had for the Corinthians. And we're going to need to keep wrestling with it again and again. What do you have that you didn't receive? See, how we answer that question reveals what we believe about God. And what we believe about God tells us what we believe about ourselves. And what we believe about these things will naturally impact what we begin to do. And what we follow through into. So I want to share a story with you. About four years ago, my son David left me a note at the church. It's on a whiteboard. And I have kept it because I am keeping this for his future wife because she needs to know these things. (laughs) And here it goes. I'm going to read it for you. David is awesome. So, 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 a million so's awesome. I am so awesome because I am David. And I am getting awesomer by the hour. No, by the minute. No, the second. My mom, she says I'm a mess. But she is wrong. I am awesome. And I'd like to say this is the only note he left me like this, but it's not. I have lots of notes like this from David from that period of life. And I've kept many of them, again, for his future wife. She needs to be prepared for what she is married into. That's a very big thing. Because he thinks he's pretty awesome. But really, I didn't need him to leave me a note to, for me to kind of pick up on the fact that he thought he was pretty awesome. His actions kind of told me. See, 
anytime I had to correct him for anything, he always acted so very surprised. Like, what? Me? I am in trouble? Don't you know I'm awesome? <laughs> like, he just couldn't fathom that he was in trouble because he was awesome. And that's true of us. Like, our actions, what we do, they give way to what we really do believe down at our core of who we are, what we believe about God. What do you have that you didn't receive? See, in Genesis chapter 1, we read, In the beginning there was God. There was nothing and no one else until God spoke into life everything. The divine creator God, who has no beginning and no ending, who lacks nothing in himself and thus needs absolutely nothing, chose. He chose out of his self-giving nature to create. And in Genesis 2, verse 7, we find how he chose to make man. It says, The Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. The very breath of God is what made man. And every single breath that has been taken by mankind since Adam is a gift of his overflowing generosity. You and I, we can't even take this next breath without the Lord gifting it to us which I just think is amazing that he would gift that to us. And it just happens. Breath after breath, day after day, gift. And at creation, God said it was good and it was very good. But it was only good and very good temporarily. It didn't last. In Genesis 3, the very ones charged with stewarding, there's that word again, those trustees, those who are given something that is not theirs to take care of, they were stewarding, stewarding God's creation on his behalf, began to question his nature. Hmm, is God really holy? Is he really that different from us? Is he really good? Does he really want what's best for me? Does he really know? And the sin of unbelief took root, leading to a very thoughtful rebellion against the Lord that had made them. You see, sin is anything we think, anything we act on that runs counter to the holy God that made us. Sin, at its core, is an otherness to his design, does not belong there. And because sin has entered the world through Adam and Eve, every generation we sit here, a part of that, has inherited their sinful and holy unnature, which leads to death. As I was kind of thinking about this picture, a kind of storyline came to mind that I want to share with you. See, there is this young girl, college student. We're going to name her Alexia. Alexia has a cute apartment but it's kind of an apartment on a budget, right? You're in college, so we're looking for all the best deals, right? Facebook Marketplace, that's where she's going. She's going to find the best things. 
for as cheap as she possibly can. But there has been this one rug. Man, she really wants it. So she is saved. She's got this perfect spot for this rug. And she is saved, and she's going to get it. And it comes, and it's awesome. It's pristine. It's beautiful. Oh, fluffy. Can take a nap on it. Just what they're hoping for. And so, like Alexia would do, she invites people over. Right? She's hospitable. She wants to have people with her. And she wants to show off this beautiful rug. So she has some friends over. They're going to have a brunch, some coffee, some muffins. And she brings her friend Zach. Zach is with her. Zach is a little clumsy. And Zach spills his cup of coffee all over that brand new rug that Alexia's worked so very hard to get. And of course, Zach, being the gentleman he is, he attempts to clean this up. But I don't know if you've tried to clean up coffee. It's much harder than it looks. It goes deep fast, spreads. It's kind of a mess. So he does the best he can, but it's really, it's still there. It still didn't really go away. It just kind of moved a little bit. So Alexia, I mean, she's saved. She's spent all the extra trying to get this rug. She's not, she can't just replace that. So she gets real practical. She's got to rearrange my furniture, right? I'm just going to put this chair over that spot. Problem solved. No one knows that's there. No problem. Except for the fact that Alexia keeps bringing friends over. And so then there's a spaghetti stain, right? Maybe some juice. Hopefully not grape juice, probably more coffee. And eventually, like, you can't rearrange the furniture anymore. Right? It's just, it's there. There's nothing you can do about it. The only thing you can do is buy a whole new rug. You got to start all over because there's no way around it. And I think that's how we treat our sin. It's there. But we just want to rearrange our furniture, try and cover it up as best we can. Matching very much Adam and Eve in the beginning. What, me? I, I have sin? I'm just going to rearrange my furniture. I'll just cover that right up. Romans 1 has a slightly different picture for us. If you have your Bibles, you can read along with me. I'm going to be reading for just a little bit. It was just too good. I couldn't cut it down. Sorry. I just love Scripture. All right, we're going to start in verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. We just move the furniture around. That's how we're going to deal with sin. We just move the furniture around. 
Now, if, if Scripture ended at Genesis 3, at the fall, there would be bitter weeping. That was all we would ever know. But praise the Lord, He doesn't leave us there. In Genesis 3, 15, right after this fall, God Himself steps in, into this rebellion, and promises that He is going to be the one that makes it right. Speaking to his enemy, the serpent, with Adam and Eve, listening in, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. See, this brokenness that has come, this sin, this death, this permanent separation, it doesn't last forever. God has said it will not. He has promised, and he is faithful. Now, I imagine Adam and Eve, as they have their children, each one they hold, and they hold them close after this promise, and they begin to wonder, kind of hoping, breathing in, maybe this, maybe this child, this will be the one that restores us, that brings us back to the Lord as he has promised. But because I have my own children, I can't imagine that it took very long for them to realize that's not true. It wasn't in them. And if they didn't pick it up real quick, then this death of their son Abel by, their, by the hands of their other son Cain probably highlighted the fact that these weren't the ones. These weren't the ones to restore all things. And verse after verse and chapter after chapter, book after book, everything we read in here tells of God moving and working to restore and redeem all things, everything he promised to do, to fully deal with this barrier, this thing that is keeping us from him, this sin and this death. See, we are modeled after him. We are made to be in relationship in him, and we are, are severed because of this sin. So you and I, we are left to ourselves, this is all we carry, sin, brokenness, desires of our flesh working out. All the things that temporarily make us feel real good, right? This self-importance, this long list that we like to make, making ourselves feel really good. Or we condemn ourselves, which has a different way of working in our hearts, but the same concept. It's, it's about me. But neither of those draw us any closer to God. They don't change the distance between us at all. And we chase after these things in the world in hopes that their version of happiness and their version of fulfillment will be enough. See, the Corinthians believe the world's seductive view of power and greatness and impressiveness was going to be it. They had forgotten, maybe kind of pushed down, that the greatest gift ever given to them and to us was the gospel. See, when God himself, Jesus Christ, came in the very form of weak and vulnerable man, stepping back into time, into the confines of his creation, and lived a sinless life. We can't picture that, but he lived a sinless life, the one we could not. And he faced the brutal humiliation of a cross, 
offering himself as the perfect sacrifice for his people. And then he rose again later, three days actually, proving his power over sin and death forever. Everything he promised in Genesis 3 and repeated again and again in Scripture. Done. Fulfilled. My favorite is Ephesians 2. It reads so beautifully, and it starts with, But God, but God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Praise the Lord. See, grace is this idea of an undeserved gift. Nothing we can do to earn it. So we don't deserve God's love. But he loves us anyway. And we don't deserve salvation. But because of his great love, he gave it anyway. We don't deserve to be adopted into his family. But he made a way anyway. We don't deserve to take the next breath. But he gives it anyway. We don't deserve the new life that he has offered us. But he's asking us and inviting us anyway. So what do you have that you didn't receive? See, it is the grace of God lavished on us that Paul hopes that the Corinthians can see. He wants them so badly to come back to it. For that grace, it is calling and it's wooing to us to humbly come to the foot of the cross where our deepest needs and our deepest desires are actually taken care of. In humbleness, we come to the cross and the cross leads us to humbleness. See how that works? It just works in the circle. Humbleness to the cross and cross to humbleness. We need a better picture of the cross. See, there is no place for self-importance. And there is no place for self-loathing when we come to the feet of Jesus, to the cross, to the way he has made for us to come back to him. Here is how Tim Keller puts it. Unless we believe the gospel, we will be driven in all we do, whether obeying or disobeying, pride, fear, apart from grateful remembering of the gospel, all good works are done then by sinful motives. Mere moral, moral effort may restrain the heart, but does not truly change the heart. Just kind of moves the furniture around. Therefore, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of yourself, and it's not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of myself less. What do you have that you did not receive? Let me pray for you. Father, Lord, 
creator, savior. Father, we give you all praise for doing what we could never do. God, we thank you for your son. God, we thank you for his willingness to come. God, to stand in our place, to do what we could not do. God, and that you have made a way. You have brought us back to you. Father, I pray that you would help us to meditate on this. God, that it would ring in our minds over and over again. As we are pulled by the lies of the culture, God, would this bring, bring back to them, bring back to us. God, you, God, you have lavished such gifts. God, where else should we turn? Where else would we go to find enough? It is only in you. Help our eyes and our minds to be set upon you. Praise your name for all the work that you do, Father. Amen.